Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito, and I had the real joy of speaking with Dr. Karen Pryor on this episode regarding her book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. It was a really enjoyable conversation, one that I could probably continue for there's no 40 minutes, but uh, this was made for 20-minute sort of episode. This is what I call the drive-to-work kind of conversation that I have with these great thinkers as a way of getting your morning started with an intellectual boost and also an additional incentive to be a good reader, the kind of reader I think that God would have us. The sound quality is not as good as I would like. We've had some trouble on my end, and uh, therefore it's not the highest quality, but I think you'll still appreciate the content here of this conversation. So now to our interview with Dr. Karen Pryor. Dr. Karen Pryor is a professor of English at Liberty University, Lynchburg, Virginia, She received her Ph.D. at the State University of New York, Buffalo. She's a recipient of various awards, author of four books. She's published articles for various Christian and non-Christian institutions. Her most recent work on reading well, finding the good life through great books, has received much praise and has ignited perhaps a renewed vigor for reading great books. She observes in her book on reading well that, quote, To read well is not to scour books for lessons and what to think. Rather, to read well is to be formed in how to think. Close quote. Dr. Pryor, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to begin where you began. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of your love for reading. Well, I guess it's kind of the same old story. Um, I was raised um, by parents who encouraged me to read. My mother read to me, um, read to all of us kids when we were little and even when we were not so little. And, um, but, you know, not every kid falls in love with reading, I guess, but right. I did. And so I was the proverbial girl with the nose in her book all the time. <laughs> and um, it's just a love that stayed with me. And I never even knew when I was in, in grade and high school that you could go on to study literature seriously, and uh, I never planned to become an English professor, but of course, ultimately, that's what seemed most natural, and so now I get to be a professional reader and um, get paid to read and talk about literature, so it's a great joy and blessing. It's the best of all worlds. Well, that, that's a, a wonderful story. Let me dig a little bit to the practical dimensions, specifically of habits, Dr. Pryor. Uh, Jamie Smith, someone who I read often, and someone whom whom you quote in the book uh, speaks of the importance of habit formation rather than uh, rather than just information. Uh, you observe in the book that the distractions are many, and these distractions are, are competing for our time. So, speaking about uh, habit formation, let me ask you a question very personally: How do you find time to read? Um, another question followed up with that would be: How do you select what to read? That's a, another question that I've been curious to ask. Yeah, good, very good question. So, I mean, I admit this in the book, and I'll admit it here. It's definitely harder for me to spend time reading. I notice my attention span growing shorter. I've been reading, actually, some books on the research behind that and the, and the cognitive science that demonstrates it's not just my imagination, but actually all the time we spend on you know, reading digitally on screens actually does change the way our brain works. So, mm. Like everyone else out there that's listening, I struggle more now uh, 
than I did 10 or 20 years ago to just sit with a book for an hour or two or three. So that just simply means that I need to be more intentional about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, part of it is, as I said before, this is my job. I have to read in order to teach the books that I'm teaching. And so it's, you know, I I have to do it. Unfortunately, I love doing it. Um, but even just the recreational reading that I do, the little time that I might have to do that during the semester, I, I have to just be intentional. I have to put the phone and the computer away, mm-hmm. um, devote minutes to that, you know, even if it's not hours like it was when I was young. Right. You know, I, I think really recognizing that it's a problem for most of us uh, yes. and then being intentional about addressing the problem and just setting time aside and scheduling it. It's so tempting to just scroll through the Twitter feed because it's much more mindless and takes less effort than it is to sit and read, you know, five or ten pages of a book. But we can do it, and we have to make ourselves do it. Well, I like what you said there about scheduling time because it seems in in this age of so many distractions from all angles, um, we do have to be very intentional about it. That was very interesting. I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts just very briefly. How has the Twitter age sort of affected our eating habits? Yeah, and I actually just finished a great book on this topic that I highly recommend by Marianne Wolf. She's one of the co- leading cognitive scientists in this field, and her mm. newest book is called Reader Come Home. Oh, wow. And one thing I think that we've been kind of fooling ourselves about is that we think if we're reading articles on our phone or tweets on our phone and I mean I can I can go down a rabbit hole that'll take me forty minutes and, and it, all I'm doing is reading, but it's a different kind of reading. Mm-hmm. And when we read and use the part of our brain, the front part of our brain that is, you know, more shallow and doesn't retain as much information, that's the part of the brain that we use when we're reading on our devices and it really is not the same thing as the deep reading we do when we're reading the printed page. That's what the science is showing. And so, again, I think I, I have done it myself. I've rationalized the time I spend scrolling through a Twitter feed by saying, well, at least it's reading. Um, <laughs> but we need to recognize it's a different kind of reading. Right, right. No, it's extremely helpful. In, in terms of um, uh, the content of your book, I want to ask a specific question here. When we think about reading in our day with all the distractions and all the things we've talked about, are we asking the wrong questions when we come to a book, I think you mentioned this perhaps in the book or elsewhere that we are inundated with a self-help culture. And I wonder if that has shifted the kinds of questions Christians had 20 years ago and the kinds of questions we ask today when we engage a book. What are your thoughts? You have framed the question so well. I don't think I've heard anyone it that way, and I didn't even really think about it that way, so thank you. You connected um, this phenomenon of, of self-help books, and by the way, I want to say that there's a certain, you know, certain Christian communities out there that disdain self, Christian self-help books, but at the same time are reading other books essentially the same way. That's why I love your question, uh, because even um, people who maybe don't read the popular best-selling self-help books and sneer at those who do may still be approaching a text in the same way of like asking what it can do for them and how they can improve even if it's intellectually or theologically which are all wonderful things um and we should want to improve in a lot of ways and reading can we can read things to help us do that but there's a different kind of reading again that's poetry and fiction yes that we read to be formed and to be shaped indirectly by it. it's, it's not like we 
read it and go away with some piece of information or some insight that we immediately apply, but it develops our thinking and perspective in ways that we carry with us throughout our way, our lives and in ways we might not measure. So I think we are off. If, if we're reading, asking, what am I going to gain from this book that's going to improve my life or my theology or even our quote unquote Christian walk? And that's an important thing to, to improve. Absolutely. But if we're reading just to answer those questions, then we're missing out a lot on what um, the gift of language and words and art have to offer us. That's very interesting. Uh, following up on that, one of my considerations over the years as Christians in the evangelical Protestant tradition, as we read the Bible in terms of our piety and our devotion to God, I often wonder if our Bible reading has been impoverished because we don't read well outside the Bible. Now, I understand I'm a, I'm a product. I understand the priorities we ought to give, but I wonder if there's a connection there. And I came to that kind of distinct conclusion. My answer to that question was yes, but I came to that distinct conclusion recently when I realized that the, the people that I most love in terms of their contributions to biblical thinking are people that are steeped in good books. One of the things you write in your book is that reading well entails discerning which visions of life are false and which ones are good and true. One of my concerns is, are we lacking the ability to discern well in our biblical interpretation and reading because we simply don't discern well outside of the Bible? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think reading well means reading the Bible well and reading other things well, and they, they go together. You know, I think we, we see a lot out there in social media and in conversations, even in our own churches sometimes. I think, we, you know, we hear people just kind of quote a verse that's misapplied right. um, <laughs> to, to yeah. a situation and become sort of a, you know, a meme or something like that that's <laughs> entirely out of its context. Right. You know, that, that's because people don't even read the Bible well. They, they go fishing for a verse that they can apply to a situation rather than reading it in context and letting letting the Bible read them, you know, we should we need to let the Bible read us rather than us trying to impose what we are looking for or wanting wanting on the Bible. And literature is when it's read well is read the same way. We just sort of submit to the text, which, you know, that I need to go back to your earlier question I didn't get to about how we select text, text, because if we're going to submit ourselves to a text in a certain way, then we want to make sure that it's, it's a good text and that we interact with it. And of course, the Bible we know is always good. But if we're constantly reading things where we're, that we're just trying to use and trying to gain something from, then that habit is going to carry over into the way that we read the Bible. And I think we see evidence of that around us every day. Well, you know, one of that questions stems from primarily reading the the reformers, you know, with Calvin and Luther and Bootser and their enormous ability to pull something from ancient writers and incorporate into the way they think about uh, biblical data. Not that one ought to interpret the other, but I think I think the reading that we do outside the Bible prepares us to read the sacred texts of the Bible. Would you agree with that? Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, again. A similar kind of hermeneutic or interpretive approach um, to literature is one that we would apply to the Bible as well. It's a, it's a, it involves a faithfulness to the text and rather than doing some violence to the text. 
because of our own agenda, whatever that might be. Um, as I've mentioned earlier, you said that reading well entails discerning which visions of life are false and which are good and true, as well as recognizing how deeply rooted these visions are in language. Let me turn that around here. Are we also not in danger, especially if we are not properly grounded, to move on to dangerous territories through reading? In other words, if reading requires discernment, what happens when good discernment is lacking in the reader? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, if, you know, if I have to be willing as someone who wants to talk about this power for good that art and literature have, and I, I believe that, that they do. But on the other hand, if they have that same kind of power for good, then I have to recognize that, well, if they're that powerful, then that same power can be used for ill or be misused. Um, and that's why reading well is so important because, you know, it, it, as other writers have, have said, Greg, Marshall Gregory is one that, that I think of that I've read recently in um, Shaped by Stories is a great book that he wrote. You know, he says, we are, sto- we are storied people. Mm. Jamie Smith says similar things. I mean, we are immersed in, in stories all day long, even if we're not reading, because we simply, we walk around and we encounter people and we use language to process our experiences all day long, and so we're interpreting and we're using language to interpret those experiences. And so we are creatures of language, we are storied creatures, and so that power is shaping us every day, Mm. even apart from written text. And so the more that we become skilled in understanding and using language and, and reading is one of the best ways to do that, then the more we understand the power that language has over us, even outside of reading context, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, reading is a dangerous thing. I don't know if you've had this experience, uh, Dr. Pryor, but uh, I've had many folks who have made profound ecclesiastical decisions, for example, have gone from a fundamentalist background to uh, uh, Anglicanism because they've read Shakespeare, Dostoevsky. These are profound changes in someone's life, and I think we are making a tragic mistake when we minimize the power of reading in the life of human beings. Right. I mean, and I think I think when I, I see a lot of changes like that too, when when people go from one extreme kind of denominational community to another. Um, and I think that the question we need to ask when we see that happening, especially if it, if it becomes a pattern, is, well, what is, what is missing? What are we missing? I, I see a lot of students myself. I've been teaching at Liberty University for 20 years, and I'm seeing more and more students who are, I mean, I myself am Southern Baptist. I've been Baptist most of my life, mm-hmm. and I love the Baptist. That's why I get to, um, you know, critique where I see criticism is due. And, and one of the things I see many people from a similar background is that they just have a hunger for, for tradition and for liturgy and for beauty. And I think there's a lot in Baptist tradition, um, there that we can offer, but we just, we have to, you know, we have to recognize it. We have to highlight it and we have to also explain, you know, where we see the limits of mm. tradition and liturgy and so forth. But that doesn't mean we can't be without beauty and without a love for literature and creation. Right. I mean, in other words, uh, your ecclesiastical affiliation does not limit you to certain literary or, th- or theological boundaries. We can, we can learn from brothers and sisters from different traditions and different writings. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think, I think a lot of, especially 
you know, in the more conservative circles where I move in, there's just a too, there's been a lot of there's a lot of nervousness and anxiety, and that actually exacerbates the problem. Um, and that's why I argue also in the, in this book and in my earlier one for reading promiscuously to mm. e- to echo you know a 17th century Puritan um, John Milton. Um, we should read wisely as well as read well. Mm. One final question, Dr. Pryor. Let, let me conclude by uh, asking you to discern the words of the wisest man that ever lived before our Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. One of the questions I want to contemplate as we, as we consider this um, divine-inspired text here is the idea that you mentioned in your book that we are holistic beings. And at times it, it seems like we read uh, mainly for some kind of intellectual purpose rather than uh, habit formation. Do you see, in addition to the reading of great books, do you see other ways of engaging the text beyond the reading that are also valuable? In other words, we can read a lot, but ought there to be also a, a kind of meditation on what we read that requires a kind of tranquility in the environment so that we can absorb what has been processed through the reading? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oftentimes people will ask me how many books I read a year or something like that, and I know lots of people track that, and and, and I'm not not criticizing that. For some people, that's helpful, but it has never crossed my mind. I I have no idea how many books I read a year. Um, I, you know, I don't, it's, it's not about the quantity um, it's about the quality, and one thing I argue for in this book is that we get so much more out of reading when we read slowly. Mm. Um, it's not a race, um, but stop and pause over a well-crafted sentence or a um, delightfully turned phrase. Um, those are the kinds of things that enrich us much more deeply than you know a volume of words. And then another way of balancing in a more holistic way is also just being able to talk about books, yeah. reading in community, whether it's a book club or you know, ch- a lot of church groups are starting um, studies of, of you know, good books. Um, there are just lots of ways that reading can be part of, of a healthy and holistic life so, beyond just, just, you know, just the number of books that we read. Right. So there shouldn't be such a thing as an armchair reader, right? We don't like armchair theologians, and the armchair reader is, remains isolated doesn't uh, engages the text and uh, fails to do what the text requires, which is to speak of its beauty outside of itself. That's so well put. I, I can't, I can't top that. That's beautiful. Exactly. Dr. Pryor, I am, uh, I'm so grateful for uh, your labors and I'm hoping this book goes far and wide. Again, Dr. Karen Pryor on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Dr. Pryor, Thanks for joining us at Kyperion Commentary. It was a delight to talk with you. Thank you. 